told Dirk that I had an extra 45 minutes to preach today but because he, uh, he pointed out that John 6 was a rather long passage and I had uh, intended on reading it all. And I changed my mind. I still want to read more than what I've specified. So if you turn uh, to in your, in your pew Bibles to page 90, 891, we will start at verse 22. hear God's word. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. As it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. 
Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he, as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who, who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this scripture. And Lord, we pray um, that your word would not return void, that you would accomplish the purposes that you have for it this day. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus has stated profoundly in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus is the only way. That is absolute. But the path we take to follow the way is unique to each of us. John 6 takes us from start to finish on a journey of discovery to find out profoundly who Jesus is and what we must do to truly be considered a follower of Christ. That's why I chose this passage to share. In it, we see a variety of people who sought to follow Jesus for a variety of reasons. Some went away disappointed, and others were appointed to eternal life. This passage also reveals the person of Christ in a profound way that helps us to follow him for the right reason. Hopefully, you will also learn to let go of the vain reasons we might have 
for following him. If you're taking notes, you might want to break this message into a three-part alliteration. I'm thinking of Dean right now. The love of Christ, the life of Christ, and the lordship of Christ. This chapter starts off describing how a large people followed him because of the signs he was doing on the sick. Desperate people sought him for personal healing, the blind, the lame, the deaf, the disease, and he healed them physically. And many discovered he healed a bigger disease and a greater need. He healed their broken soul. There were also the gawkers, I'm sure, the ones looking for a magic show. Jesus always disappointed them. He never did a sign to earn the applause of men or to benefit himself. We need only look at Luke 23 for an example of this. It says here, there, when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because he, for a long time he had been wanting to see him for what he had heard about him. He hoped to see him perform a sign of some form. Replied with him many with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. Seeking healing is not a false reason for following Jesus, but it is an insufficient reason for following him. If all you want is a temporary fix to a permanent issue. Next, Jesus performs an amazing miracle, feeding five thousand men. We are told and probably another 15,000 women and children with five barley loaves and two fish. What does this miracle reveal about Christ? Certainly that he was concerned about the physical needs of the people. But it also revealed his power over creation. It should open our eyes to the fact that God the Father has ordered the world in such a way that he has provided every morsel that we ever eat. We don't see it because we think of God as far away and distant many times. But now the bread from heaven has come down. He is here in the flesh. He is real and he is personal and he is powerful. What is represented here is the love of Christ. His compassion to meet the people where they had their greatest physical needs for their healing and their hunger, but also as a way to reveal a greater need. So now Jesus reveals just how dull-minded most of us sheep really are. And he states, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, because you ate the loaves and had your fill. They were following Jesus because he was their incarnate bread machine. To be honest, as a child, I did not believe what Jesus was was saying in this passage when I heard about it. Because I could not believe that anyone who had seen the miracles of Christ would be so base as to only want to follow Jesus because he had filled their stomachs. But as I have gotten older, and I have seen the basest nature of humanity... And some people, that's all they want. Food, shelter, sex, entertainment. As long as they have these basics, they will not pursue anything else. Maybe that's you. Clinging to the lowest rung on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. 
Jesus was loving and compassionate, but he met the people's need for food in a miraculous way, but he refuses to be their bread wagon, and he calls them to a higher standard. Jesus instead redirects their appetites from their concern for their bellies to an eternal food. Do not work for the food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the God, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. What do you work for? What do you strive for? Notice that Jesus warns us not to work for food that spoils, but I believe that it would be okay to expand on that. He's warning us about any temporal concerns that drive your daily activity, working out to look good, striving to be rich, striving to have a fancy car and a big house and a beautiful spouse. It does not matter what it is, it will spoil. So what is the alternative? Work for food that endures to eternal life. It may not have occurred to them that they could be working with an eternal perspective. That gets the sheep ruminating. I had to look it up to make sure that sheep really do ruminate, but they do. Okay, they chew the cud, goes down the stomach, comes back up, chew it a little bit more. What shall we do that we may work the works of God, they ask. This question reveals the most common mistake that mankind makes in their pursuit of God. We think that we can earn our way to heaven by the work we do. Forgetting conveniently Isaiah 64, 6, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. There is no way for our for us to work our way to God, even our good deeds are polluted rags. Once again, you see the master's hand guiding them to a deeper understanding of God's righteous requirements, stating, this is the work of God that you believe in the one whom he has sent. Sincerely believing in Christ is all that is necessary to gain eternal life. This may seem simple on the outset, and it is a simple process, but simple does not necessarily mean easy. Too many people walk the aisle, say a prayer, and go back to everything that they've ever done before with no heart change, and that is easy believism. It is not an effectual call. How many people will die in their sins because they believe they were right with God and were not? Proverbs tells us there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it is the way of death. But we must work out our salvation in fear and trembling flows from sincerely believing in him for salvation first. But natural man wants to work his way to heaven, quickly forgetting that the only wages we ever earn are the wages of sin, which is death. So how do these followers respond with the challenge to believe? They said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. What? They want a sign so that they can believe? What example did they give but the example of manna in the wilderness? Wait, 
Didn't Jesus just feed them? And their wives and their children, thousands of people with a few loaves of bread and some fish, do they see no connection to the sign Jesus gave and the very example of proof that they seek? This scriptural example is a proof that people that need a sign to believe will never never be satisfied even if they have one. How many people do we see today that would ask for that very same thing? If God would intervene and part the heavens, then I would believe, they'd say. The reality is that if someone requires a sign to believe, they will find another reason to not believe. Israel had many signs in the desert, yet they still rejected God and died in the desert. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, Jesus states, A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given unto it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. Yet even this lack of faith does not alter the divinely orchestrated discussion that Jesus continues to reveal to them. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. But now we get a game changer, a claim that sets him apart from every spiritual guru that ever lived. Either it is true or it is not. He states, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Christ literally forces us down one of two pathways with this absolute statement. The truth of it is hard and unavoidable. Christ is not just a good man, a great moral teacher, because he is claiming to be everything. He's claiming claiming to be capable of satisfying the hunger and thirst of your very soul. Only God can do that. He is the bread of life, or he is delusional, or he is deliberately misleading the people, and in either case, that makes him a bad man. Each of us, as we consider following him, has to recognize that Jesus gives us evidence and demands a verdict from us. Christ has to be the Son of God and Savior of the world or a bad man. We don't have the option of saying, yeah, I went to church, I learned some moral lessons, and now I'm a good guy living my best life. When Jesus says, if you come to me, you will never hunger or thirst again, when he says, I am the bread of life, This is a statement that forces down those pathways. Accept him or reject him, but you may not say, Jesus is one pathway to heaven. His absolute statements do not give us that option as reasoning humans. He is the only way or he is no way. And if that was not challenging enough to believe, Jesus now separates the sheep from the goats, stating, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Now imagine for a moment, we probably heard those, that phrase many, many times, but imagine that you were a devout Jew living in that time and hearing those words for the very first time. Every single one of those Jews would find that statement literally and figuratively hard to swallow. It was anathema to a devout Jew. A Jew was not to touch a dead body. It would make them unclean, much less eat it. 
And Jews never drank blood. Why? Because God forbade it. It was not kosher. Deuteronomy 23 states, Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, eat the blood for the blood is the life, and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. People of that day were scientific enough to understand that anything that lost too much blood died. Life was in the blood. But God gave these instructions as a preparation for this day. And God, being God, knew the hidden nature of blood because he is the designer of blood. Today, our greater knowledge of blood gives us even more profound insight into the meaning of of drinking his blood. Blood not only gives life, but it also takes away death. How? Well, we know that blood brings oxygen to every cell in our body. That is what gives life. But it also removes the toxins that accumulate in your cells. These toxins, if not removed, also cause death. Have you ever tried to work a muscle out when the blood flow is restricted? The pain you feel is from the toxins being trapped where they are building up because blood cannot remove it. You see this all the time when athletes cramp up. So blood gives life and takes away death. This divine design gives deep meaning to, his, to this bloody symbol of the Lord's Supper. Christ's blood gives life and takes away death, the death of our sin, the toxin of our soul. You have to drink his blood to gain eternal life. Many Jews, literally and figuratively, could no longer swallow what Jesus was telling them to do, so they turned away. It was a hard saying. There are many reasons that cause people to stop following Jesus. Many get to college. I see we have some college people here. And they're challenged by the culture the teachers and the students, but mostly their choices, which don't match the holy life Christ is calling us to do. They love darkness more than light because their deeds were evil. Our lives are filled with catastrophic, catastrophic events, all of which we can point an accusing finger at God and say, if you really were God, you would not have allowed this horrible thing to happen in my life. We want God to not only be our bread machine, but our spiritual genie with unlimited wishes. And everything in life goes only the way that we expect it to. God is not our spiritual sugar daddy. God does not exist for us. We exist for him. Our catechism asks the question, what is the chief end of man? And we know the answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. When we find fulfillment in him and him alone, then life's challenges will not shake us. Sadly, those who turn from following Jesus turn away from the bread of life. And what is the consequence? We choose the slow starvation of our soul without hope, without life, without light until we die and are left in an emaciated corpse. Jesus asked his disciples, do you want to leave also? Peter, Peter the impetuous, 
gives us an answer that can only be described by the proverb as apples of gold in settings of silver is a word fitly spoken. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter addresses Christ as Lord. The declaration of Christ's lordship explains the rest. When we recognize that everything that happens in our lives happens under the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ, then nothing that happens to us will completely overwhelm us. We cling to these words when life seems filled with trials and tribulations. Jesus, I may not understand why you brought this trial in my life, but I trust you. And I know there is hope in no one and nothing else. I've experienced enough tribulation in life to want to quit on many occasions, but I turn to Peter's words often. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Christ warns us in the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I'm not sure what you're going through right now. For myself, I can point to at least three things, three issues I'm dealing with, some of which made it hard to even prepare this sermon. And even as I write, I think, I believe God called to my mind this, this passage or this person, Horatio Spafford, once again. And he's been mentioned several times this year uh, in different contexts. Um, for this sermon, <clears throat> listen to his biography of his life. It states, Horatio Gates, Horatio Gates Spafford was born in New York on tw the 20th of October, 1828. But it was in Chicago that he became well known for his clear Christian testimony. He and his wife Anna were active in their church, and their home was always open to visitors. They counted the world-famous evangelist Dwight L. Moody, among their friends. They were blessed with five children and a considerable wealth. Horatio was a lawyer and owned a great deal of property in his home city. But not unlike Job in the Old Testament of the Bible, tragedy came in great measure to this happy home. When four years old, their son Horatio Jr. died suddenly of scarlet fever. Then only a year later in October 1871, a massive fire swept through the downtown Chicago, devastating the city including many properties owned by Horatio. That day, almost 300 people lost their lives, and around 100,000 were made homeless. Despite their own substantial financial loss, the Spaffords sought to demonstrate the love of Christ by assisting those who were grief-stricken and in great need. Two years later, in 1873, Spafford decided his family should take a holiday in England, knowing that his friend, the evangelist D.L. Moody, would be preaching there in the, in, in the autumn. Horatio was delayed because of business, so he sent his family ahead. His wife and their four children, remaining children, all daughters, 11-year-old Anna, 9-year-old Margaret Lee, 5-year-old Elizabeth, and 2-year-old Tanetta. On the 22nd of November, 1873, while crossing the Atlantic on their steamship, Ville de Havre, their vessel was struck by an iron sailing ship. 
226 people lost their lives as the Ville de Havre sank with only, within only 12 minutes. All four of Horatio Spafford's daughters perished, but remar remarkably, Anna Spafford survived the tragedy. Those rescued included Anna, who was found unconscious floating on a plank of wood, subsequently arrived in Cardiff, South Wales. Upon arrival there, Anna immediately sent a telegram to her husband, which included the words, saved alone. Receiving Anna's message, he set off once to be reunited with his wife. One particular day during the voyage, the captain summoned him to the bridge of the vessel. Pointing to his charts, he explained that they were passing over the very spot where the Ville de Havre had sunk and where his daughters had died. It is said that Spafford returned to his cabin and wrote the hymn, It is well with my soul. There and then, the first line of which is, When peace like a river attendeth my way. There are other accounts that say it was written at a later date, but obviously the voyage was one of deep suffering and is the clear inspiration of the moving and well-loved hymn. Horatio's faith in God never faltered. He later wrote to Anna's half-sister, On Thursday last, we passed over the spot where she went down in mid-ocean, the waters three miles deep. But I do not think of our dear ones there. They are safe, dear lambs. After Anna was rescued... Pastor Nathaniel Weiss, one of the ministers traveling with the surviving group, remember hearing Anna say, God gave me four daughters. Now they've been taken away from me. Someday I will understand why. Naturally, Anna was utterly de devastated, but she testified that in her grief and despair, she had been conscious of a soft voice speaking to her. You were saved for a purpose. She remembered something a friend had once said, it is easy to be grateful and good when they have so much, but take care that you are not a fair weather friend of God. Following this deep tragedy, Anna gave birth to three more children, but she and Horatio were not spared even more sadness, as on February the 11th, 1880, their only son, Horatio, named after the brother who had died and also after his father, also died at the age of four. In August 1881, the Spaffords left America with a number of other like-minded Christians and settled in Jerusalem. There they served the needy, helped the poor, and cared for the sick, and took in the homeless children. Their desire was to show those living about them the love of Jesus. Horatio Spafford died of malaria on the 16th of October, 1888. Anna Spafford continued to work in the surrounding areas, until her own death in 1923. But Horatio and Anna were laid to rest in Jerusalem. It can be truly said, in the words that Spafford penned, that it is well with their souls. The question remains, is, is it so with yours? This chapter gives us reason to know that is, it is well with our soul. Jesus loves his children and he cares about and needs our physical needs meets our physical needs and our need for healing. Jesus reveals that he is life, that Jesus is the bread of life, and that the, we, if we believe in him, we will have eternal life, and we will never be thirsty or hungry again. That the only thing necessary to work the works of God is to believe in Jesus, the one whom he has sent. And finally, that Jesus is Lord. He is Lord of every trial, every moment of suffering, every moment of doubt, every moment of tribulation. 
Over it all, Jesus said, it is mine, trust me. I will bring you through the trials and tempests of this life. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Lord, I go only to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that each of us, if we're not currently facing a trial, we'll be facing one shortly, some sort of tribulation. Lord, we're thankful for examples of the Spaffords and others who have persevered through trials and tribulations. But we're most thankful that Jesus Christ came as the bread of life to give us life, to give us eternal life. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.